This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello, and in this edition, it's Anybody for Tennis. We're going to concentrate on daily telegraph reports of the Wimbledon Lawn Tennis Championships from across the years, although there are one or two other stories as well. But we start on the 16th of July, 1880, in the southwest of London. Great interest has throughout been taken in the Lawn Tennis Championship contest, which for some days past has been in progress at the grounds of the All England Club at Wimbledon. Much greater excitement, however, was manifested yesterday when the winner of the gold medal, Mr H.F. Lawford, and the Championship of England 1879, Mr J.T. Partley, played for the Championship Honours. Mr Lawford recently won the Prince's Club Cup and played brilliantly throughout the week in the Wimbledon gathering, while Mr J.T. Hartley won at the All England grounds last year and beat the Irish champion, Mr St Ledger. An extraordinarily large attendance had honoured the players yesterday and the two prettily decorated grandstands erected for the occasion were well filled. Four sets were played. The first, won by Hartley, six games to three, and the second by the same player. Mr Lawford won the third, but Mr Hartley, again playing brilliantly, won the last and thus came out the winner by three sets to one. He therefore retains the championship for another year. Well, from 1880, we move forward to 1903 and the ladies' title held on July the 1st of that year. The largest attendance which has ever been seen at the All England Lawn Tennis Club for the championships was present yesterday. A good deal of interest was naturally manifested in the doings of the aspirants for championship honours, both in the ladies' and the gentlemen's sections. The holder of the ladies' event, Miss M. Robb, did not intend to uphold her title, but Mr. H. L. Doherty not only was present, but proved that he is still the finest exponent of the game in this country at all events. The ladies' event proved a more even struggle than was anticipated. Miss D. K. Douglas, later Mrs. Lambert Chambers, seemed on form to have a virtual walkover. Miss E. W. Thompson, however, gave Miss Douglas her hardest match in the tournament. Miss Thompson set about her task in the gamest possible spirit. Catching Miss Douglas a trifle off her best form, she won the opening set by 6-4. It was another fine fight in the second set, but this time Miss Douglas' superiority was manifest and she made honours easy at one all, winning by 6-4. There was great excitement at the start of the concluding set. Miss Douglas exhibited almost masculine ability, Keeping her opponent on the move from start to finish, she, in the end, wore her down and won the set 6-2 and the match and championship at two sets to one. We'll be returning to Wimbledon later, but a battle of another kind now, as Oliver Cromwell in July 1644, the 2nd of July, writes to his brother-in-law after the Battle of Marston Moor where the Northern Army, the main hope of the Royalists in the Civil War, was destroyed thanks to Cromwell's surprise tactics. He attacked late in the afternoon when the Royalist generals had strolled away in their coaches and their troops were relaxing. To my loving brother, Colonel Valentine Wharton. It's our duty to sympathise in all mercies and to praise the Lord together in chastisements or trials that so we may sorrow together. 
truly England and the Church of God has had a great favour from the Lord in this great victory given unto us, such as the like never was seen since this war began. It had all the evidences of an absolute victory obtained by the Lord's blessing upon the godly party principally. We never charged, but we routed the enemy. The left wing, which I commanded, being our own horse, saving a few Scots in our rear, beat all the prince's horse. God made them as stubble to our swords. We charged the regiment of foot with our horse and routed all we charged. The particulars I cannot relate now, but I believe of 20,000 the prince hath not 4,000 left. Give glory, all the glory, to God. Sir, God has taken away your eldest son by a cannon shot. It broke his leg. We were necessitated to have it cut off, whereof he died. Sir, you know my own trials this way. Cromwell's own son had been killed shortly before. But the Lord supported me with this, that the Lord took him into the happiness we all pant for and live for. There is your precious child, full of glory, never to know sin or sorrow any more. He was a gallant young man, exceedingly gracious. God give you his comfort. Before his death, he was so full of comfort that to Frank Russell and myself, he could not express it. It was so great above his pain. This he said to us. Indeed, it was admirable. A little after, he said, one thing lay upon his spirit. I asked him, what was that? He told me it was that God had not suffered him to be any more the executioner of his enemies. At his fall, his horse being killed with the bullet, and as I am informed three horses more, I am told he bid them open to the right and left that he may see the rogues run. Truly, he was exceedingly beloved in the army. All knew of him, but few knew him, for he was a precious young man, fit for God. You have cause to bless the Lord. He is a glorious saint in heaven, wherein you ought exceedingly to rejoice. Let this drink up your sorrow, seeing these are not feigned words to comfort you, but the thing is so real and undoubted a truth. You may do all things by the strength of Christ. Seek that, and you shall easily bear your trial. Let this public mercy to the church of God make you to forget your private sorrow. The Lord be your strength. So praise your truly faithful and loving brother, Oliver Cromwell. Well, from Marston Moor, let's go back to Wimbledon, July the 7th, 1923. Suzanne! is still champion. Losing only two games in each of the two sets in yesterday's final, the French girl came serenely through her challenge from Miss McCain. She had swept through the lists at Wimbledon for the fifth successive year, and in this five years' reign, playing over 50 sets, she has only lost one to Mrs Lambert Chambers in the challenge round of 1919, her first year, Verily, a remarkable record, and one that justifies the exclusive class in which she and she alone has been enthroned. Losing the first game, which she might have won, Miss McCain forfeited her next four without any such probability. She was inaccurate. She beat herself. Openings came but were not accepted. The champion's steadiness was sufficient. Then, to prove her humanity, or perhaps to relieve the monotony, Mademoiselle Lenglen hit three balls in succession out of court. Her opponent took a love game. Miss McCain also won the next game. She employed her cross forehand well on some mid-court returns and made one crisp, decisive volley. But the champion's lapses were only temporary. 
She won the eighth and set game without serious strain and hit a harder ball in the first game of the second set. The increased pace put into these strokes confirmed the impression that Suzanne, despite the heat, had ample reserve stamina. A double fault cost the champion the second game. She won the third on her opponent's errors and the long fourth by keeping cool after Miss McCain, having achieved a fine sequence of volleys to win a point, was visibly reacting. Two really bad shots on her backhand down the line as the service returns gave Miss McCain the fifth and, as it proved, her last game. The rest of the match was scarcely stimulating. Suzanne had no need to strike an aggressive note. The errors of her opponent in reply to her defensive shots were sufficient to carry her out. Miss McCain was vantaged twice in the last game. No higher did British hopes rise. We move forward to July the 1st, 1927, when Tilden is vanquished in this report in the Telegraph by A. Wallace Myers. Great men, by small means, are overthrown. William Tilden, after leading Cochet two sets to love and 5-1, striding the centre court like a colossus, and we petty men walk about under his huge legs, left the arena an hour later a defeated man. France had won a match that seemed ordered, packed and delivered to America. No surprise in the annals of Wimbledon has been quite so astonishing, so complete. Tilden was never within a point of victory yesterday. The nearest he got to it was that 5-1 lead in the third set with 15 all in the seventh game. Afterwards, Cochet won 16 strokes in sequence. He broke through Tilden's service twice in succession in love games. Of 18 points, the American only captured one, and that was by one of Cochet's errors. The score of 2-6, 4-6, 7-5, 6-4, 6-3 is a chart of this amazing challenge and its fluctuations. Why did the famous American, schooled in hard fights, playing not for gain but sport, ever alert and ambitious, ambitious, lose a championship match that was virtually won and won by his own brilliant, devastating efforts? An American student of psychology asked me whether I had observed that the King of Spain entered the committee box when Tilden held his commanding lead. She suggested that Tilden might have deemed it only courteous to the royal visitor to provide a longer exhibition. Another American, nursing his pride a little ruefully, mentioned an even more startling theory, and probably as fantastic. He suggested that Tilden's whole mind was on the Davis Cup, that he was anxious that Cochet should be selected to play in the singles for France, that he had proved to himself and to every competent observer that he knew how to beat Cochet and could beat him when the international championship was at stake. Tilden had no opposition worthy of the name in the first set. He was gay, insistent, dominating, hitting the lines with drives of withering speed, serving balls that brooked no reply. Cochet seemed a little numbed by the assault, but he was gradually thawing before its fire, and in the second set he broke through Tilden's service for the second time and helped himself by increasingly confidence to four games. Something must happen to Tilden, some loss of concentration which would impede his power. Cochet attempted a counter-attack at the opening of the third set. He tried a harder forcing shot and came in on its heels, but the little Frenchman could not get his touch, search for it as he might. Tilden, bursting with energy, was hitting through Cochet. The process became mechanical and mentally exhausting. It had no incentive of a coup carefully planned and executed. The business was too easy to excite the enthusiasm of its author. At 5-1, Tilden did not tarry or let down. On the contrary, he hurried to finish the match off. 
The extra haste caused him to slam where previously he had hit with a neatly gauged precision. He lost his driving touch, as he thought temporarily, but, as it soon proved, permanently. A match which looked like ending in 40 minutes of destructive hitting had closed an hour later with a vindication of sound tactics and a still sounder heart. Well, before our final reports from Wimbledon, of course, the other great battle of the beginning of July happened in 1916 at the Somme. And here is the Padre's view of the 21st Casualty Clearing Station. This is by the Reverend John M.S. Walker. At the Somme, a battle from the 1st of July to the 13th of November in 1916, the British sustained 60,000 casualties on the first day. In October, torrential rains turned the battlefield to a quagmire and by mid-November the Allies had advanced five miles at a cost of 450,000 German, 200,000 French and 420,000 British lives. The Reverend John M.S. Walker writes, Saturday 1st of July, 7.30. The heavens and earth were rolling up. The crazy hour had begun. Every gun we owned fired as hard as ever it could for more than an hour. From a hill near Vale, over to us on the left and right, great observation balloons hung, 18 in view. Aeroplanes dashed about, morning mist and gun smoke obscured the view. We got back for a late breakfast and soon the wounded by German shells came in. Then all day long cars of dying, wounded, but all cheerful for they told us of a great glorious successes. They're literally piled up, beds gone, lucky to get space on floor of tent, hunt or ward. And though the surgeons work like Trojans, many must yet die for lack of operation. All the CCSs, that's the casualty clearing stations, are overflowing. Later, we have 1,500 in and still they come. 300 to 400 officers. It's a sight. Chaps with fearful wounds lying in agony. Many so patient. Some make a noise. One goes to a stretcher, lays one's hand on the forehead. It's cold. Strike a match. He's dead. Here a communion, there an absolution, there a drink, there a madman, there a hot water bottle, and so on. One madman was swearing and kicking. I gave him a drink. He tried to bite my hand and squirted the water from his mouth into my face. Well, it's an experience beside which all previous experience pales. Oh, I'm tired. Excuse writing. 2nd of July. What a day. I had no corner in the hospital, even for Holy Communion. The colonel said that no services might be under cover. Fortunately, it was fine, so we rigged up my packing case altar on a wood behind the sisters' camp. Then all day, squatting or kneeling by stretchers, administering Holy Communion, etc. Twice I went to bury. Of course, we used the trench we had prepared in a field adjoining. I first held a service of consecration. When I turned round, the old man labouring in the field was on his knees in the soil. I buried 37, but have some left over till tomorrow. Saddest place of all is the moribund ward, two large tents laced together, packed with dying officers and men. Here they lie, given up as hopeless. Of course they do not know it, but I can't write. I'm too tired and have some patience letters. 3rd of July. Now I know something of the horrors of war. The staff is redoubled, but what of that? Imagine a thousand badly wounded per diem. The surgeons are beginning to get sleep because after working night and day they realise we may be at this for some months as we were at Verdun. We hear of great successes but there are of course setbacks and one hears of ramparts of dead English and Germans. Oh, if you could see our wards, tents, huts crammed with terrible wounds, see the rows of abdominals and lung penetrations dying, 
You meet a compound fracture or femur walking about. In strict confidence, please, I got hold of some morphia and I go to that black hole of Calcutta, moribund, and use it or I creep into the long tears, tents where two or three hundred Germans lie. You can imagine what attention they get with their own neglected. The cries and groans are too much to withstand and I cannot feel less pity for them than for our own. And so we conclude this episode with David Miller's report from the 23rd of June, 1964, and Wimbledon snoozing. It was match point on court number three at Wimbledon yesterday. The ball flew down the sideline and fell wide, but there was no call from the line judge. She'd fallen asleep. The proverbial nightmare became fact for the unfortunate Mrs. Dorothy Cavis Brown, a brilliant linguist and an experienced umpire and lineswoman for more years than most people in lawn tennis can remember. Mrs. Cavis Brown, who is in her 70s, was taking the far sideline in the first round men's singles between A. Siegel, South African champion, and C. A. Grabner of the United States. It was Grabner's stroke which was out, sufficiently clearly for the umpire Mr. Lawrence McCallum to call game, set and match to Siegel. 6-2, 7-5, Siegel jocularly drew Mr. McCallum's attention to Mrs. Cavis Brown, now leaning precariously sideways on her chair, with loud laughter rising from the 2,000 crowd. She was nudged into wakefulness by a ball boy. She arose and walked out with spirit and dignity. Later, Captain Michael Gibson, the referee, said, I have seen Mrs. Cavis Brown, who is very weary after continual umpiring for several weeks and was not feeling too well. She has now gone home for two days' rest. Siegel commented, I am not surprised that anyone watching my play should fall asleep. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias. www.soundimage.org. <laughs>